it's, uh, it's good to be back with you. Um, if you're here again for the first time, uh, thanks for, for joining us. Uh, hope that you're, you're encouraged thus far. Um, if you have a Bible with you, you can take it out, turn it on, swipe it, however you want to do it, uh, to Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we'll, we'll have the words uh, projected for you, but uh, I'll say it again. You sound like a, a, you know, a, a parrot every week, but I encourage you to bring your Bible because that's what we do here is we read our Bibles, we, we preach the Bible. Um, we're, we're working our way through a letter in the New Testament called Ephesians, and th- this, this letter is just, just loaded with some unbelievably remarkably beautiful truths. And so I kind of want some, some Bibles open or on so you can believe me that it's not me making this up, that it's actually coming from, from the Bible. Uh, I don't know if you've had that. I know, actually, I know most of you have had this happen. If you've been in a, a situation and uh, something's going on, you share one of your burdens with a, maybe it's a fellow Christian, maybe it's a non-Christian, you kind of tell them your situation that's going on and, and there's no other response than, from them than I'll pray for you. You know that, right? We've all said that. We've all done that. Um, confession moment here. I've said that, and I haven't always done that, right? You say, I'll pray for you, and then, you know, the day goes on, and, and you actually forgot to pray for them. And, you know, God, there's grace for that. Um, but uh, there, there's something about that when, when you know somebody actually is praying for you, right? Maybe, maybe you've done this or somebody's done this to you. Like, instead of saying, I'll pray for you, they actually stop and and actually pray for you in that moment. It's kind of a kind of a powerful thing. If you haven't done that, try that. That's that's a good one. It'll throw some people off, but but pray right there in the grocery store, wherever you're at. Just go for it. It's fun. Um, but uh, Ephesians chapter one, we've been working our way today. We're actually going to get to look at a prayer that the Apostle Paul wrote down for us. This is this is him actually fulfilling the commitment that he would pray for the church at Ephesus and the other churches that this letter would have reached. So this is Paul's prayer for a church, and, and it's more than just a prayer. Um, kind of as I was working through this passage this week, there, there's like five sermons that could be in this. Like, you could go just a number of different ways. So I, I'm not preaching five sermons today. We're just going with one. But, but there's a number of different ways, and so we're going to glance into this prayer, and we're going to kind of pull some things out. But, but let's read it today. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 15 and then go down to the end of chapter 1 to uh, verse uh, 23. So uh, this is the word of the Lord uh, for us today from Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this, the word of our God, will stand forever. Let's ask him to bless the preaching of it. 
Father, we come now and we ask that you would, that you would open hearts and minds, that you would unstop ears and remove the blinders on our eyes that are all naturally there, Lord. We need your help. We pray that you would come now, that you would, that you would meet with us through the preaching of your word and that you would draw us closer to yourself, that we might know you and the immeasurable greatness of your power. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I want to open with two stories, uh, slightly disconnected, but I'll hope to tie them together. One's personal, one's not, two stories. Um, the first one is, uh, back, back when I was a kid, um, I didn't dabble much in the magic arts, okay? I'm going somewhere with this. But in, in the magic arts, like, that was not, I never went through that phase, you know, as a kid. But I do recall, as a, I think I was maybe 12, 13, something some along those lines, I, I was at a friend's house. I mean, it's a vivid memory. I was, I was at Scott Dalton's house. Um, I mean, it's very, very particular. I was at his home. It was, it was a, a, one of those sleepovers, right, where you try to stay up the whole night. And, and I vividly remember us pulling out the Ouija board. Everybody remember the Ouija board? I don't know if they're still making these things or not. I'm not sure if it's a relic, if it's vintage. But, but the old Ouija board was, was this kind of, you know, entry-level kind of status with, with magic. I had never dabbled in it, but I, I vividly remember us pulling out the Ouija board for some fun that night. And if you've never done the Ouija board, it's, it's one of these weird things where you kind of put your fingers on it and you, I think you say things or you, you ask questions and then it's supposed to gravitate towards the answer, right? And, um, and I remember, I think we were just kind of doing silly things, right? Like, does this girl like me, you know? Or it, it really was at this really dark kind of voodoo moment. But I do expressly remember that, that it was an attempt for, for us to tap into the unknown. Right? It was an attempt for us to, to, to somehow grapple with power that, that we normally wouldn't have access to. It was, it was an attempt for us to manipulate our future, to, to look into it in a, in a way that, that ordinarily would not be available to us. Um, the practice of magic was very common to the original readers of this letter. The, the, the cultic background of the church at Ephesus and some of the surrounding churches was that of magic. Uh, the, the, the great goddess, Artemis Ephesia, was, was the central uh, factor for the economy there in Ephesus. And you can read about this, this great outrage in Acts chapter 19 about how there was an uprising against her. But, but the background for these believers is of magic. And so the thing about magic is it is an attempt to grasp power. It's an attempt to, to manipulate authority. Right? And that, that's what magic does. And for these believers, that was their background. And now Paul, in this prayer, actually plays on their background a little bit. This is a power prayer. It's, it's loaded with power language. And we're going to kind of unpack some of that. That's the first story. Second story, a little briefer, less personal. Uh, I think maybe it was a year or two ago, a, a video went viral, and it was of this young girl, I think she was less than a year old, and it was her first time seeing with glasses. Any of you see this one? Uh, this, this young girl apparently had poor vision, and her parents realized it, and, and they videoed the first time that she put on glasses and could actually see clearly. I guess she was extremely farsighted. And in this video, it's her parents, I think they're like at a restaurant, they put these glasses on this, this young girl, and the parents, the mom and the dad are talking, and she, you know, lights up, 
for the first time, she's actually clearly seen her parents, and she just, just goes back and forth between mom and dad. And it's, it's this incredible thing. Uh, it's on YouTube if you, if you need to see that this afternoon. But it's this, this incredible picture of what it means to have sight, what it means to really see. You know, not many of us get those experiences of first-time sight. And, and so I mentioned that, and here's me trying to tie these two stories together, because this passage is all about those two things, power and sight, okay? The, the, the desire for Paul, the apostle, and the believers he's writing to, to see God's power. That's what he's after in this prayer. And so today, <clears throat> here's what I want us to, to take away. I want us to see that God's power is seen when our power is surrendered, okay? So, so, so the, the bulk of the sermon is gonna be us seeing God's power in some different avenues. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pluck some kind of some themes out of how we see God's power. And then we're gonna conclude by, by seeing how there is no other choice at the end of this passage and, and in our lives than to surrender our own power to see his. So here's how I want to do it. I want to draw out three aspects of power from the passage. I want to look at first the power of hope. Secondly, I want to look at the power of new life. And then thirdly, I want to look at the power of belonging. So if you're taking notes, the power of hope, new life, and belonging. Let's first look at the power of hope in verse 18. Uh, the way we use the word hope is extremely different than the way the Bible uses the word hope. The way we use the word hope is by saying things like, I hope she says yes when I ask her to marry her. Or I hope I pass this test that I didn't study very hard for. Or I hope that the Steelers win their seventh Super Bowl ring this year. Yes, that's my second week in a row of a Steelers reference. I promise football season's coming. It'll slow down when it's here. But we typically use the word hope in that kind of way, this wishful thinking, kind of, kind of this, 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 this nostalgia that, oh, I, I kind of hope this happens, right? The Bible uses it in an incredibly different way. Biblical hope is much more powerful than wishful thinking. Biblical hope is a confident expectation and a strong desire that something would happen in the future. In fact, it's not even just the, the strong desire portion, though that is part of it, but it is the expectation that it will happen. There is no wavering doubt in biblical hope. You see, Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus and for you, the church at Mosaic, is that we would have that kind of hope. The unwavering, the unfading, the sure and confident hope that we would have. If you look at verse 18, Paul, really the, the end of verse 17 and 18, his prayer is that we would get this wisdom, this, this revelation, this insight, this, this seeing of our hope. And, and the hope is, is twofold in verse 18. It's to that which he's called us and to the riches of his inheritance. Now, if you were here with us last week, I'll, I'll kind of catch you up if you weren't. If you were here with us last week, the passage talked about how we are God's inheritance. And in fact, we are the treasure that God is pursuing, that, that he has moved heaven and earth to get us. And the, the idea continues here that, that Paul's deepest desire in his prayer is that we would begin to get that that our hope 
would be rooted in the fact that we belong to God and nothing can shake that truth. So do you know when, when hope's most powerful? I, I've kind of pulled out this idea that hope is powerful. Here's when hope is most powerful. Hope is most powerful when life is uncertain. Okay? Um, when, when does hope seem fleeting to you? When is it fading or flimsy? Maybe, maybe for you it's like at the end of the month, like today, when, when there's more days than there is money, you know, kind of thing. End of when, when money stressors become a problem, that, that's when hope runs out. Or, or maybe for you it's, it's kind of bigger vision. Maybe that the, the, the ladder, the career ladder that you were climbing oh so fer ferociously is, is actually shorter than you thought it was. And so in your mind, there, there's this kind of, this cap, capstone to, to hope. Or maybe it's when, when your children fail to live up to the unrealistic expectations that we've put on them. Kind of our hope is like, wow, these kids are not what I thought they would be. Maybe it's when our marriages are filled with conflict and strife and this is not the honeymoon anymore. And so hope begins to fade. Or maybe it's when our, our friendships fail us and they are superficial on some levels and exhausting on other levels. Maybe it's when we're in a country that's divided, that's at war with itself in many very real ways. You see, the certainty of future hope is the power that fuels all of those kind of circumstances. In other words, biblical hope looks further down the road than the current circumstances. Um, Paul's prayer for us is that we would have hope in the future promises from God, that we belong to him, that we are his and he is ours, that there is nothing that we can do, good or bad, to remove that reality from our existence now or forevermore. That's when hope becomes powerful. That's what Paul is after in in asking God to give us that reality, that we would experience that, that we would really see that kind of hope. The second uh, thing that I want us to see today is the power of um, new life in verses 19, and 20, 19 through 21. Uh, what's, what's the most uh, extraordinary display of, of power or maybe physical feat that you've ever experienced? I mean, th maybe you could think of one. Maybe it's those strongman competitions. I, I was into those back in the day. Uh, my, my most recent thing, uh, I'm into CrossFit, okay? I know some of you know about CrossFit and you think it's a cult. Others of you have no idea what a CrossFit is, and, and I know my body hides it really well. I, I'm into CrossFit, okay? I go to CrossFit. And there's something about CrossFit that displays unique power. Well, one of the things that, that, um, that CrossFit does is they have the annual games. And they just happened. Uh, they happened a few weeks ago. The annual games is basically the, the Olympics of, of CrossFit, right? They get the best of the best, the fittest of the fittest, the elite athletes across the nation, uh, actually across the world. It's global. And they come together and they do these ridiculous workouts, like ridiculous. And one of those workouts, one event that has always baffled me is called the Murph. Okay, the Murph, in case you're not familiar with it, is this. It begins with a one-mile run. Then you move to do 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 squats. You close it out with another mile run, and you do the entire thing with a weighted vest on. Yeah, I get tired just watching the people do this workout. And, and I watch them do this workout, 
And I mean, these people just blew through it. Like, like honestly, like we stroll through Cottonwood Mall. That's the way they work through this, through this workout. It's just incredible. It's this, it's this extreme display of power and greatness like none other. And so um, Paul actually chooses to, to do an event. It's kind of a, the Murph of all Murphs. I mean, it's, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit loose here. But it's the Murph of all Murphs that, that Paul chooses to show God's power. Now, if, if I were Paul, if I were writing the Bible... You know, I, I would probably use creation to explain God's greatness and his power. You know, talk about how he, you know, he, he, he stretched the, the cosmos and the canopy and how he placed all of these stars, which are spectacular in and of themselves. And there's, be, you know, beyond counting ability of stars. I, I might use creation, but, but Paul uses the idea of new life as the premier example of God's power. Uh, you see it in, in verses 19 through 21. Paul wants us to see the immeasurable greatness of his power. And then he uses, he kind of just lays on the language according to the working of his great might. And then he gets to the punchline in verse 20 that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at, the right, at his right hand in the heavenly places. Let's pause there for a minute and just, just kind of unpack that. I mean, if you're familiar with Christianity at all, you know a couple of things. That, that a man named Jesus came to the earth, that he lived a life, a, a pretty good life at least, from, from what you've heard. He's, he lived a pretty good life. He died this death on a cross, and then he, he rose, right, from, from, from death to life. You, if, if you're familiar with Christianity at all, you know those basic kind of, kind of simple truths that, that are oh so profound. But, but, but think about what happened, not only in the death, but, but in the resurrection, that, that Jesus was fully man. And so he experienced everything you and I experience physically, emotionally, spiritually, all of those things. He knew our circumstances. And then he died a death, and, and we're familiar with the cross and kind of what, that, 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 what took place on that Roman cross that was, was so physically horrendous. But, but the worst part about it was that his father, the father whom he had, the father of glory that Paul's talking about, he actually turned his face away from his own son and he left him for dead. He was put in a tomb, he was buried, he was in the silence of the darkness, forgotten by the world and by his father. And then God, the father, by his power, his might, raised Jesus bodily from death to life. Signifying not just that he would have, you know, a, a new life and he would be all right, but signifying that the death was accepted, that it was a, a substitutionary death on behalf of people that needed a savior. And so here Jesus is given as the premier example is not only rising from death to now bodily life, but ascending to God the Father and sitting at his right hand. Now, that's metaphorical language. And it's metaphorical language for saying, he is my right-hand man. You've heard of that kind of language? He's the one whom, whom the Father has given all authority. I mean, look at the way that, that Paul describes it, that, that he's ruling and reigning over everything. He's above all rule, authority, power, dominion. He's above every name that is named, not in this one, but not in this age, but also in the one to come. In other words, he's exhaustively saying that Jesus is the king over all things. That's what the power of new life shows us. But it's so much more than that to you and to me. Um, in our confession, or in our words of assurance this, this morning, I read to you 
Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read it again. Paul, the same author of this letter, says that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he uses the language of this passage. He says, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see, new life is the power of the gospel. It's, it's a life that you could never live. Jesus came and he wasn't just a, a great rabbi, you know, some wise scribe who kind of gave us some behavioral modifications to kind of adjust and tweak in our lives. He came and he lived the perfect life that you and I could never have lived. He perfectly obeyed everything that was required of him. And then he willingly went to take the death for us. He, he took the death that, that your rebellion and my rebellion had incurred upon ourselves and the, the, the punishment was, was death and it was, it was separation from God. And then he rose and he defeated your death and the sting of your sin. And now he ascends and he sits at God's right hand and he whispers the promises of God into his ear on your behalf. That's powerful. See, new life is more powerful than new chances. Um, I think there are many ways, even in our kind of Bible-believing Christian circles, that we diminish the power of the gospel. Let me touch on a few. One of the ways that we diminish the power of new life in the gospel is that we view the gospel as merely a second chance to do better. In other words, we, we will affirm everything I've said this morning, that, that our sins have incurred judgment against us, we deserve to be punished, that Jesus died in our place as our substitute, we've been made right with God, and we think now as Christians, now God has given us a clean slate, he's given us a second chance to do better. Well, here's breaking news, you still won't do any better. Because what we need is not a second chance, we need a savior. We need someone to rescue us. And when we think that Christianity is just a second chance to do a better job, we diminish its power. Uh, another way we diminish the power is that we think that being good gets you to God. Let's be honest with ourselves. Sometimes the way we operate in our lives is that, generally speaking, if we do the right things, if we're pretty good people, things are going to go our way, and that is somehow God smiling on us, Right? That somehow, that, it, that if we could just make the right moral decisions or pick the right political figure or, or kind of dress the right way or carry the right Bible or, or do whatever it is, that somehow things are going to go all right. And at the end of the day, when this world ends or the Lord calls me home, that's what's going to make me right with God. And that, my friends, is a diminishing of the power of the gospel. One other way that I'd like to touch on is that we think that Christian behavior and rituals is what makes you a Christian. <sighs> I'm going to have to reserve myself a little here. We think that the way we dress or the way we act or the places we attend or the television we watch or, oh, or we don't have a television, we think that that is what makes us a Christian and that diminishes the power of the gospel. What makes us a Christian is the finished and complete and final work of Jesus on our behalf, and that's it. There is nothing else. There is no political party. There is no chain store. There is no, you know, just direction of our lives that would make us Christian. Jesus makes us Christians, and that alone is good enough. You see, new life is more powerful than new chances. If you want to see the power of God, 
then look no further than the new life that he offers you. A new life, not a new chance. The last thing I want to touch on, and this is kind of going to get, this is going to get real gritty as far as application. I, I really want to do this. Um, the third thing I want us to look at is the power of belonging in the last two verses. One of the questions that I, I'm hoping to answer and then kind of tease out an answer for us today is how can I see the power of God at work in my own life? In other words, you know, we, we come here, I think Tito mentioned it in a prayer, we don't come here just to kind of hear the words and then just kind of leave and they just never really have an impact. I want us to ask and answer the question, how can I really see God's power at work in my life, me? And uh, the, the, the answer I think is found in the text, it's a two-step answer uh, to that all-important question. I want you to, we're actually going to go back up a little bit to verse 19. I'm not sure if you picked up on this when I read it, but in verse 19, Paul's prayer is that, the, that we would see the immeasurable greatness of his power, and then there's that little kind of cliff note at the end that says, toward us who believe, okay? So, so there's, there's believing is the first step of seeing God's power. Um, so the second step is at the end of verse 22, it says that he's put all things under his feet, talking about Jesus, gave him his head over all things. And then again, that, that little cliff note at the end there, to the church, okay? So, so there's a couple things going on here. I wanna, want us to talk about what it means to both believe and to belong, okay? The first step is to believe. Um, there is no way around this. We've seen it time and time in Ephesians already that the only way to be right with God is to believe, to believe in the good news that I've just already explained to you, uh, to believe that, that Jesus alone is enough for you. And so um, I want you to know that here at Mosaic Church, believing is smiled upon, but is not a requirement. We're going to talk about what it means to, to kind of belong. But I want you to know that here in this particular expression of, of God's body, we believe that the good news is the centerpiece which all things flourish out of. And so believing is not just a one-time thing per se. Yes, we believe in, in God immediately, you know, justifies us, he makes us right, all of those things. But I also know that believing can be a process, right? And we as a church want to walk with you in that process of believing. Um, believing is more, about the, more than about just knowing about Jesus. It's, it's actually knowing Jesus, okay? So knowing about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that's history. But knowing that Jesus died, he lived, he died, and he rose for you, well, that's salvation. There, there is a big distinction there. And we, as a church, want to come alongside you in knowing what it means to believe. The second part is that belonging uh, to his church is where you can see uh, God at work. Um, I, love, I love being a part of a church plant. If, if you don't know we're a church plant, uh, it's, uh, that's kind of Christian terminology. We are a new church, okay? We are a, a, a fairly new church. We're about six months old, and we're, we're still kind of figuring out who we are. But I love it because new churches tend to draw new people, right? And we see new people coming in at our doors. And I love, I love the people that God's bringing here for, for one simple reason. Our vision from the very beginning was that this would be a place where all kinds of people from all kinds of background could come together. 
And, and, and it's, been our, it's been the heartbeat, and, and God has been true to it and, and faithful about it in bringing diversity to this body. Um, and it's just that. Did you notice the language? Even if you've never read the Bible, you may know that, that God calls his church his body. Um, verse 22 and 23 says that, that Jesus is the head, everything's under his feet, and we're the body. Kind of gives us a vision, right? I mean, we know how a body works. Well, uh, there's other parts in the Bible that talk about how the body functions. And the way the body functions, we don't need the Bible to understand this, is that it has different parts that do different things. In other words, a body wouldn't be a body without uh, a neck or without hands or fingers or a feet or, or legs. All, all of the parts are, are needed. And that's very particular, that's why God uses that imagery, because he wants you and, and all of us to know that, that you are wanted and you are needed in his church. In other words, there, there are no discards, right? Everybody has a function in the church body. And it is our great calling and our great privilege to help you discover what that is. And so you need to know that the church needs you. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard that, but, but, but the church needs you. Not you generally, but you specifically. That God has designed you in a unique way to fit into his body. And it is your role and the church's role to help you discover that and flourish in that. That's what it means to be a part of his body. You see, belonging is powerful when you know you're wanted. I mean, we all need affirmation, right? I mean, let's just be honest about it. We need it. We need to know that we're needed. And that's, that's how God has designed us. He's wired us to want that kind of affirmation. And he's telling us that what it means to be a part of him, what it means to be united to him, is to function in his body. We want to help you do that. In fact, this may kind of sound like a cheesy infomercial, but I'm okay with that. Um, we want to help you get plugged in even now, even today. Like this might even be your first time and you're thinking, what have I got myself into? This guy's telling me that I have a function here and I don't even, I haven't even talked to this guy yet. We would love to talk to you. We, we just want to know who you are. Uh, there's a next steps table right outside that door. Here comes the infomercial, okay? There's a, there's a table right there and we like to hang out around that table and there's some people that know each other, but there's also some people that don't know each other. And here's what we're doing in this church. We're trying to build a body that functions well to serve others and to serve our community at large. And we need you. And so I would encourage you, in fact, hopefully that, that God would be, maybe even be moving in your heart now, that you would come and talk to us about that because I have an inclination in my heart that you've always wanted to be used, but you've never been known how. You've, maybe you've faded into the crowds of a large church or maybe you've kind of been in and out of the church scene and you've never really felt plugged in and you've kind of felt on the fringes or, or maybe you didn't feel up to par, like maybe your, your faith wasn't, wasn't as strong and as bolsterous as it once was and so who am I to serve? And, and we're here to tell you no that the church needs you. Um, let me, let me kind of conclude like this. Uh, God's power is seen when our power is surrendered. Uh, everything we do in our lives on some level is a grasp for power. Uh, I want to remind you, do you remember where Paul, the apostle who wrote, penned this letter, do you remember where he was when he wrote it? I probably said it in the first sermon. Some of you Bible scholars kind of know. He was in prison, that's right. 
This man was in prison. This is the apostle, right? The, the, the one that, that did all of these incredible things for the kingdom of God. He started all these churches. This man writes a prayer like this in prison. Now, I can think of, now their prison system was not like our prison system, but it was still prison. He was incarcerated on some level. He, could, he did not have the freedom that we enjoy. And this man writes of God's power in the most powerless situation. I mean, I, I, I've never done prison time, but I can imagine you feel pretty powerless in that, right? You're, you're shackled, you're, you know, you're incarcerated, you're, 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 you're just, your power is stripped from you. This prayer in this passage screams for us to see God's power. But I think until we are willing to let go of our own power, we'll never see it. It'll never happen. And so, do you want to see God's power at work in your life? Here's how it happens. You let go of your own power. You lay it all down. Do you know the supreme example of God showing his power? It's actually by taking on flesh in the person of Jesus. He came in, he experienced humiliation. He didn't grasp power. Philippians 2 tells us that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but he laid himself down, taking the form of a servant. He let go of his power, and that was the ultimate act of power. Lay down your life. Let go of your power. The very way that God displayed his power through Jesus is the very way he wants to display his power through you. Power is in a person, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the God of this passage, and his power can change everything about you. Do you want to experience that power? Consider that an invitation today. Let's pray and ask God to do that. Father, we come in here bombarded by different things, stressors in life, work, children, family dynamics, relationships, broken and failed marriages, Lord, we're bombarded with all of our brokenness, and then we come and we see how you love us in spite of us. And um, God, we're amazed. We're humbled that you could show your power to such powerless people like us. And so, Lord, I pray now that, that even, even the hearts that are in this room that are, that are dry, that are weak, that are broken, uh, that you would heal them, that you would rise them up, that you would show them your power, and that you would show them that, that you want them and that you want to use them, and that you want to show them your power. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would do that in this church body. We pray that you'd continue to grow and help us to flourish in our belief that this might be more than a place for us to just congregate on a Sunday and, and enjoy some scattered fellowship, but this would be a place where, where the, the roots of belief and belonging would, would take place in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.